Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear B. Van Slee. I could see him tracking closer and closer every time I looked away, like it had been his intent all along to somehow touch the fashionably appointed lady that had just pulled into his gas station. That and more. But first, you might know that I offer one-on-one training, storytelling training for folks. You can learn more about it at kevinallison.com. And I have to say, it always especially touches my heart when someone purchases a session with me as a gift for someone else in their life. Someone will say, oh, my wife tells the funniest stories around the dinner table. And I know she'd like to tell a story in a more public way. So I bought this session for her. Or someone will say, my best friend was chosen to give the eulogy at a celebration of his late mother's life, and I know he's nervous about it, so I thought it would be nice. I thought he'd find talking to you supportive around all that. People meet with me about starting podcasts, writing articles or memoirs or solo shows, making boardroom presentations, hosting social events, prepping to be interviewed on TV or radio. Some folks just meet with me for life coaching and guided meditations about transitions in their personal lives. So be sure to reach out to me directly at kevin at show.com if you have any questions and everything else you need to know is at kevinallison.com. We'll be right back. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Shay Diamond behind me now. Shay is a remarkable singer, songwriter, and transgender rights activist. And we thought we'd start with her because we're calling this week's episode Trans Lives 2. We happen to have two new stories that were shared by trans folks at recent Risk Live shows that touch specifically on the subject of the joy and the challenge of being trans in America right now. Because we have had trans folks on the show share stories before about incidences in their lives where being trans was not relevant, you know, was not a part of the story. But in these two cases, it was, so we thought it was a nice time to run another one of these episodes. 
And as this particular series continues, you can find every TransLives episode at risk-show.com slash translives. And like I said, these two stories were shared at recent Risk Live shows, and everyone talked about how moving it was to be there in the room. So don't forget, we've got our Reno, Nevada show on November 11th, our LA show on November 15th, our New York show on November 17th. Everything you need to know is at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Joshua Honaker, a story that he shared when Risk was at the Magic Bag in Detroit last summer. Now, the audio on Joshua's story is not the best. A few of the recordings were lost, but we did mix and remaster it as best we could so you can hear it all right. And stay tuned, because at the end of the episode, I had a conversation that I recorded with Jonathan after the fact, and I'll talk all about that at the end. But before that, we're going to hear a story that B. Van Slee shared in August at a risk show in Los Angeles. We were so moved by both of these stories that David Crabb, the host of the L.A. show, also wanted to record a conversation after the fact with B. So I'll say more about that later on, too. Now, I'll warn you with B's story, there's a very brief moment of a medical procedure described in the story that gets a bit graphic, if you're especially queasy about that sort of thing. And don't miss it. B has a wonderful web comic series she's featuring on Instagram, at Bone and Thistle Comic. So, here is B Van Slee now with a story we call Under Pressure. So I was a curmudgeonly 30-something dude when I came out here about six years ago from Chicago. My wife and six-month-old son were going to fly out to meet me after I drove cross-country in our little red Toyota, whose name is Snowberry. Uh, <laughs> it was going to be a long road, but I didn't mind. I had our dog, Worf, to talk to and his big hairy paws to fiddle with. And listening to all of my music on the road out was like a long reflection of nice moments from eras past that I've liked to dwell on over the years. I sang along a lot, whether I could remember the words or not, keeping us on the road with one hand, fiddling with Worf's paws with the other, thinking about stuff, enjoying the landscape as it, we gradually escaped the farmland and semi-industrial sprawl of the Midwest and got into the more interesting southwestern countryside, mountains and the desert, so beautiful and shockingly green possibly because of all the storms that had been raging around the area, like the one just ahead, staring me down like a gigantic, angry gray monster waiting to devour me whole, which it most certainly did. Thunder and lightning, sheets of rain slashing across the road, the brush bent way down against the ground, whipping around like crazy. I've got the steering wheel gripped with both hands just to keep us from getting blown off into oblivion, which is when... Snowberry's low tire pressure light came on. I shut off the music, 
Didn't feel like I had a flat. I didn't hear anything. But it seemed like a pretty good idea to make sure. Luckily, by the time I found an exit, the storm had started to die down. Then I found a gas station with an air pump, got out, put a quarter in the machine, grabbed the nozzle, had a look at my tires, realized I have no idea what I'm doing. You don't really need a car in Chicago. We'd only recently gotten snowberry because we were going to be having a baby. I was in the middle of nowhere. The last thing I needed was to have my face blown off from overfilling a tire or to have one explode while driving 90 miles an hour next to a canyon. I made eye contact with a cowpoke, gassing up over yonder, gave him the pantomime like, uh, hey, you know how to fill up a tire? But he just got in his truck and drove off, so I went into the marketplace to ask around, hey, do you know how to fill up a tire? But the clerks were all busy helping customers, and everyone else I asked just looked at me, a tattooed, scraggly-looking dude with a three-day beard and his shoes untied, like I was going to ask him for a ride to Burning Man or something. Uh, So I ended up just going out and airing up the tires a little at a time until the light went off, drove to a nearby rest stop to make sure it stayed off, tossed the ball around for wharf a bit, and then packed him back in, and we were on our way all the way to the little rental that we had waiting for us in the valley. Let myself in, had a look around, let Wharf out into our new yard, which turned out to have this big, gorgeous lemon tree in it. Then stretched out, ordered myself a nice, mediocre, but well-deserved pizza, and enjoyed the long journey's end. A few days later, my little family arrived, and a few weeks after that, the truck with all of our stuff and we settled into our fresh perspective. The thing is, there was a lot I'd been eager to leave behind in Chicago. I grew up at a time when the only real cultural touchpoint to transgender was a fictional serial killer in Silence of the Lambs. I told my wife when we first started dating, but by then I'd given up on the possibility of ever transitioning. I think coming out here was a way to try to come to terms with that, to start new in a place where there are mountains and the ocean, and to maybe escape some of the depression that had been chasing me for years. But the problem with gender dysphoria is that it's this inescapable physiological dissonance and persistent longing that only gets worse with time until it just becomes this undercurrent of dissatisfaction to everything. So after about a year of exploring LA and parenting and getting into the routine of things, Here I was again, constantly complaining about airplanes and leaf blowers and sirens and price gouging, getting on the phone with the city about the bright light from the school beaming into my room all night. My life was very nice. I had my health, a great creative career, lovely little family, and I was proud to be a father. I Loved teaching my son stuff and watching him grow from a burbling infant to a hilarious toddler. But more and more of my psychic reality was being defined by all these assaults on my peace of mind that no one else seemed to really notice. Like all that stuff was getting wrapped up in the bitterness I felt, being kept so far apart from the simple existential contentedness I imagine everyone else enjoys. And then... I discovered here in California, transition-related care is covered by insurance. 
maybe someday we'll be able to step into some sort of medical transformation pod that liquefies our mass and genetically reconstitutes us according to our preferred gender expressions. In the meantime, those of us so inclined faced years of complicated surgeries and procedures as we grind slowly toward actualization, one painful milestone at a time. I cannot imagine a procedure intended for the extraction of information from an enemy of the state being more torturous than electrolysis. <laughs> Pretty early on, I had to go in for a revision for this one of a suite of uh, FFS procedures that I'd had at this clinic in Beverly Hills, one of which involved peeling back my scalp to like mess around with the shape of my skull. <laughs> so uh, I'm laying on the table as the surgeon has this hook knife shoved way up my nostril as he's carving down the bone at the ridge of my nose with these really jerky, alarmingly imprecise seeming <laughs> movements like cuts up and down. My whole face is numb, but all I can hear is my whole skull vibrating with the sound of this. And I'm doing my best to keep chill, but then um, the knife slips off the bone and stabs up into my nose meat. And I guess the anesthetic wasn't strong enough because I scream in pain. The surgeon and his assistant freak out, scrambling to inject me with more stuff, blaming me somehow, while I'm lying there sobbing on the table, tears streaming down my face, you know, but still trying to stay as motionless as possible for fear of permanent disfigurement. <laughs> On the less traumatizing side of my transition, I was going through this sort of second adolescence. A lot of trial and error, you know, stumbling through makeup and style and mannerisms, learning when not to play with my hair, how to reach for stuff without exposing my butt, <laughs> and how not to wear stuff that might expose my butt. <laughs> my closet's full of what the hell is I thinking stuff I'm never ever gonna wear. I went through this sort of boho businesswoman phase. <laughs> I kept buying blazers, not, I had no idea why. I work from home, <laughs> by the way, blazers. Uh, there was some awkwardness reflected back at me, you know, furtive looks, straight up double takes and staring. I didn't care what anybody thought. I was just happy to finally be pursuing a version of something I'd been wishing for every single day of my life. But it can be sort of distracting to be reminded of your otherness every time you go out, especially since the whole point of transitioning is to finally be comfortable in your own skin. So as horrible and tragic as this pandemic has been, for me, masks were sort of a boon. It was nice to be able to go out without worrying over the most troublesome area of my face. About a year into the pandemic, um, I had to go in for yet another excruciating laser treatment, a series of many in preparation for bottom surgery. Yay. Uh, um, I think I was on Mulholland, somewhere near Skirball, and uh, Snowberry's low tire pressure light came on again. <laughs> it had been about five years since that time in the middle of the desert. Uh, I was running early, so I just pulled in the first gas station I saw. This time, the second I stepped out in my tan leather ankle boots and uh, this exact skirt, actually, by the way, and a uh, loose-knit coral cardigan and my sparkly army green scoop neck, the machine just started up on its own. I looked over to the station just as this uh, saggy-eyed man in a purple polo shirt stepped out and started heading toward the car. He stopped about halfway, I guess, because 
um, he wasn't wearing a mask and he saw that I was and just stood there with his hands backward on his hips looking vaguely bored and he said, did it come on? <laughs> uh, yes, it did, uh, I, I said and I, I smiled with my eyes and thanked him for activating the machine without me having to pay for it. Grabbed the nozzle, gathered up my skirt, crouched down by one of my tires and realized I still have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'd gotten Snowberry's tires completely replaced about a year after moving here. It just hadn't come up, you know. But this time, I had someone to ask. But when I stood up to go over to the station to ask the man, uh, I saw he'd come around to just on the other side of my car to watch me, still looking vaguely bored with his hands backward on his hips. That surprised me. So I just crouched down and without asking anything... And looking at the tire, I didn't really see anything to uh, indicate how much pressure to put in. And I'm looking at the nozzle, and this big hand comes into view. And then a voice in my ear says, the numbers come up. The guy had come around to crouch right next to me. And he's pointing at the little gauge thing on the nozzle. I said, oh, okay, yeah, right. Um, and I went to put it on the tire to show him I knew what he meant, hoping he'd go away. But then he grabbed hold of the nozzle right over my hands. And he squeezed it, he squeezed my fingers to activate it, and then just held me there like that as air blew into the tire. It took a second for me to realize what the hell was going on. Um, I guess I'd never gotten around to imagining something like this happening. The last time I had to do this, I couldn't get someone to help me if I'd been on fire. <laughs> if I'd gone flying off a cliff somewhere in the middle of Arizona, it would have been their fault. And now here's this big man leaning right up against me with his big dumb hands held right over both of mine. And I sort of just froze. I felt pretty stupid for letting it get to that point. It was sort of validating, I guess. But thinking about it later, I could see him tracking closer and closer every time I looked away, like it had been his intent all along to somehow touch the fashionably appointed lady that had just pulled into his gas station. It makes me think about all the cautionary lessons that I'd missed out on, that girls are generally obliged to learn at a young age one way or another, right? Fair trade-off for a life of male privilege, maybe? He let go of me after a minute and then stood up to watch me as I went around airing up my tires, trying not to look at him. And then he wandered back into the station and I drove away and that was it. So yeah. You're probably thinking, ah, a story of how B arrived in L.A., her first crash course into what it is to be a woman in this world. And you're right, sort of, um, as a definitive demarcation between my male and female life, it's pretty hard to deny. But I don't like to give such a skeezy experience credit for my actualization. And I don't have to, because... Just a little while later, I was out for an evening walk with my son, who's now six, through our little neighborhood. Um, the pandemic had started to die down again. <laughs> uh, mask restrictions were being lifted again. It was good timing for me. I felt like I was done hiding anyway. There was this tall hedge wall just up ahead. Um, and as we approached, this old man popped into view from the other side with a sort of halting step backward as uh, he swung open the tailgate to his SUV. Uh, it almost knocked him over, but he caught himself and then just stood there staring at this handful of groceries he had laid out in his trunk. And he had this little fold-up walker in there, too. Can I help you with these? I said. And he said, oh, hi. <laughs> he hadn't seen me there. Um, and I gave him my nicest smile, and I said, do you need a hand with these? And he said, oh, no, thank you. Uh, that's okay. 
Uh, but even though he looked like really delighted by the offer, and so I said, are you sure? His driveway looked you know, really steep. At this point, my son had edged up like right up to the trunk of the car, and he pointed at this little stack of multicolored sponges. I can get these, he said, <laughs> my little six-year-old son. Um, the old man laughed and gave him this big ecstatic smile, and he said, thank you, oh, thank you. Looking back and forth between us, he pointed at his house, and he said, oh, my wife will be coming out in a minute to help me. I said, okay, uh, looking at his house, um, hoping to see his wife walking out, you know. But just before we continued on our way, the old man grasped me gently on the arm, and uh, <laughs> he uh, gave my son another huge ecstatic smile, and he said... You have a good mother. <laughs> Thank you. My mother told me of the miracle I was, said I could grow up to be anything I want. I decided to be a boy. It was cute. I had snapped back, toothless grin, used skin knees, a street cred. I was the mystery of an anatomy, a question asked but not answered, tight roping between awkward boy and apologetic girl. And when I turned 12, the boy phase wasn't deemed cute anymore. Naturally, I did not come out of the closet. The kids at my school opened it without my permission, called me by a name I did not recognize, said lesbian, but I was more boy than girl, more Ken than Bobby. It had nothing to do with hating my body. I treat it like a house, and when your house is falling apart, you do not evacuate. You make it comfortable enough to house all your insides. You make it pretty enough to invite guests over. You make the floorboards strong enough to stand on. My mother, fears I have named myself after fading things. She fears that I'll die without a whisper, that I will turn into what a shame conversations at the bus stop. She claims I've turned myself into a mausoleum, that I am walking casket. News headlines has turned my identity into a spectacle. The brutality of living in this body becomes an asterisk at the bottom of equality pages. No one ever thinks of us as human because we are more ghosts than flesh, because people fear that my gender expression is a trick, that it exists to be perverse, that ensnares them without their consent, that my body is a feast for their eyes and hands, and once they have fed off my queer, they'll regurgitate all the parts they did not like. They'll put me back into the closet, hang me with all their other skeletons, I will be the best attraction. Can you see how easy it is to talk people into coffins? Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey 
is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We're back. I was 17 at my first day of my first real high school job. My manager handed me a white dry erase name tag and a Sharpie. And in a moment where most people would know what to do without a second thought, I froze for a minute because about a year before this, I had come out as transgender. And as any trans person knows, there's a period of time where you don't know when it's safe to go by what name. But after a second, I wrote Josh. And this was December of 2018 when in the spring of 2018, the Trump administration had made the drastic move to alter the definition of Title IX. Title IX being the piece of legislation that protects rights for a lot of minority groups in work and school places. And at this time, I was a senior in high school, so every day I was walking into this battle zone where whenever people saw me walking down the hall, whether I was going to the bathroom or to class, I would get taunts and uh, yells from people. I didn't even know people who were far younger than me, but I was one of the oldest visible trans students in my school, so they all kind of knew who I was. And there was one extreme case where I was sitting in a sociology class, and we were in the unit of gender and sexuality. And on this specific day, we had been talking about transgender people as a concept, anything about it. And a boy sitting three feet away from me raised his hand to make the point to the class that he thought it was completely within his rights to murder trans people because they were lying and deceiving you. And everyone in that class knew I was out, so that felt like a pretty direct attack to me. So when I would go to work, it was my safe space. A lot of my coworkers were queer or had queer people in their families. So I knew I could be whoever I needed to be while I was there and I didn't have to worry about anything that they were gonna say. And I knew that they would have my back if anything happened. And this store was characteristically a girl's store. And while I didn't necessarily think that we needed that binary label, most people that came in the store definitely did. We sold hair ties and headbands and head wraps and bracelets and scrunchies and sparkly flowers and glitter and anything you could think of that was any color of the rainbow in every variety. So part of our requirement while we were at work was to wear a lot of the merchandise. So on a normal shift for me, I'd have scrunchies up my arm, bracelets up the other arm, flowers clipped to my shirt, 
and a headband and big dangly earrings, and that was all pretty normal. And I really didn't mind it. A lot of people thought that that would make me uncomfortable, but in general, I like accessories. I like to have fun with how I look. And when I would go to school, that wasn't something I was allowed to do. If I wanted people to see me as a trans guy or a guy, I had to show up fitting their definition of masculinity. So that meant wearing a lot of button downs and t-shirts and jeans, and I couldn't really stray from that. So being able to go to work and wear whatever I wanted and be as over the top as I wanted was always really fun for me. And it just let me be who I needed to be, even if it was for a couple hours a week. So one night, it was early December and it was a weeknight. The mall was dead at this point. We were about a half hour to close. No one had been walking by the store for at least an hour. So my manager and I decided it was time to start closing the store. And she started the paperwork and I started cleaning up. And out of nowhere, of course, a mom and daughter walk in and they stop in the doorway of the store. They don't even really come into the store. And the mom is wearing your classic high school shirt with the last name on the back and this long brown hair, classic soccer mom. And the daughter was this 12 year old. She didn't really say much the entire time they were there. She seemed pretty shy in general. And the mom was already over it before the conversation even began and just kind of huffed and said, we want to get my daughter's ears pierced. Which, okay, fine. That was in a service we offered at that store. So no problem. I put on my best customer service voice and I walk them out to the tracing cart and we start picking out earrings. And at some point I called my manager over to help and I am always just pretty awkward around people I don't know. So I step back and I let my manager take over whatever I need her to do and just wait to be able to step back in and do my job. And while I was waiting, I could feel the mom's eyes kind of glancing up and down, looking me over, which wasn't really that abnormal. I was wearing a lot of stuff. I didn't really look like someone you see in general walking down the street. People don't usually have six scrunchies on their arms and a scrunchie on their ankle and clips in their hair. So it wasn't abnormal for people to be looking at me like that. So I kind of flash her a smile just to acknowledge that I know she's looking at me and I look back down. And I can feel her glare get stronger and I look back up at her and I catch her eyes and see that her eyes are fixed on my name tag. And as soon as I notice this, she opens her mouth to say, Josh, <laughs> your name's not Josh. And that was the first time I had someone directly call my name into question. At school, people didn't have to. They already knew my birth name. They'd known me for years. But to have a total stranger just call me on that so suddenly was jarring. And I didn't know what to say to her, so I stayed silent. And she took that silence as an opportunity to keep going. And she said, my niece asked us to call her that, and I think it's disgusting. And it's disgusting how people like you live, and I don't know why anyone would want to live their life like that, and I can't believe you're allowed to work in a store with children. And once again, I didn't know what to say to that. I wasn't looking to engage with this. So one more time, she opened her mouth to say, my niece's name is Jessica. I bet that's your real name. And the thing with her saying that is that that was the name on the ID in my back pocket at that time. And it would be another 10 months or so before I was allowed to change that name. And to have her figure it out, catch on, I don't really know what to call it, was 
startling. And I didn't know what saying no to her would do in that moment because we were alone in this mall. It was me, her, my manager, and her daughter. And there was no one else around without yelling at least. So I didn't want to aggravate the situation and I managed to stutter out. Yeah, you're right. And we finished the piercing and my manager brought her out and they left. And at that point it was time for the store to close. So my manager shut the gate and I fell to the floor and just let the panic attack that I'd been pushing away the entire time take over. And when she had said that name, it felt like someone took a sledgehammer to a glass display case I had built for myself. A display case that I had so delicately carved my name into the bottom, trying to portray people that I am masculine, that I'm a trans guy, that I'm Josh, that I am who I'm trying to tell you that I am. And I just hoped people wouldn't try to look past that. And now it felt like that armor was gone. So after that, I stopped wearing my name tag. Every argument that people have uh, against trans people, every transphobic thing you hear can always be boiled down to one argument. And it's that trans people are lying, they're deceiving you, and they're trying to pull something over on you to get to an ulterior motive. And I don't know what she thought my ulterior motive was, but she definitely felt like she caught me in a lie. And that was a lie I had been trying to run from for the last year since I'd come out. And it was the lie that in my own head felt like I was showing people every day. And by removing that name tag, it was saying that I wasn't gonna lie anymore and I was gonna give in to that. And I didn't wanna pretend. So it took about another year and a half before I was able to look in the mirror and really see myself as me and as who I've been trying to convince everyone that I was for so long. And it clicked one day when I could look in the mirror and see that I was Josh and I was masculine and I could still have femininity if I wanted it. And that I didn't have to fit into a display case of what a guy and a trans guy has to look like. But that year and a half was a really long time, especially when you're in high school. So I spent that year and a half texting every younger trans person I knew. And after I came out, several people followed at my high school. So there were quite a few of them. And I would tell every single one of them, you're valid. I don't care what other people say to you. I don't care who tries to break you down. If anyone tries to take that away from you, you come back to me and I'll tell you it again. And every single one of those kids told me that I was the first person to tell them that. And no one had given them that support before. And in case you're wondering, I did start wearing my name tag again. And I would love to see the look on that woman's face the next time she walked into the store and saw pronouns on every single employee's name tag. No, your mom don't get it, and your dad don't get it, Uncle John don't get it. And you can't tell grandma cause her heart can't take it And she might not make it 
They say don't dare, don't you even go there Cutting off your long hair, you do as you're told Till you wake up, go put on your makeup This is just a phase you're gonna outgrow There's something wrong in the village, in the village Oh, they stare in the village, in the village Oh, there's nothing wrong with you It's true, it's true There's something wrong with the village, with the village Well, that is almost all of this week's episode. This is Rabel behind me now, and we just heard from Joshua Honecker with a story we call Call Me By My Name. Now, I recorded a conversation with Joshua that we're featuring over at patreon.com slash risk, and I want to share just a little clip of it for you here. So you were the final story of the night. Mm-hmm. And I came out and did my whole, that's it for the show. Let's hear it for all our storytellers, yada, yada. And then the house music came up and I walked backstage and you were there sitting alone, having just finished telling your story. And I think you were weeping a little yeah. bit. Yeah. 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 And like I felt like, oh my gosh. That was because when I was listening to the story backstage, I was like, oh, this is momentous. And then when I came back and saw you like that, I was like, oh, yeah, that was momentous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was close to the end. I don't remember what part of the story I was on, but there was a part I almost started crying while I was on stage. And I was like, no, you're so close to the end. Get through the rest of the story. Because that was the first time I'd ever spoken in front of a crowd. I got to say, that conversation blew me away. Joshua recently got up to give testimony to the Ohio Board of Education on behalf of trans students. A lot of folks on the right are fighting to reject the Title IX protections for trans students in schools. One of the things I find so consistently maddening about these political fights is the very people being talked about who will be most affected by the policies are so often left out of the conversation. When it comes to handing down legislation about transgender students in schools, we need to hear the stories of transgender students in schools. I gotta say, the extent to which explicit, super explicit, overt bigotry is now just pouring out of right-wing media and pouring right out of the mouths of right-wing politicians and power players just right out in the open. This is causing countless historians and political scientists all around the world who study fascism to insist as loudly as they possibly can, that our country is experiencing a five-alarm fire. I mean, it's crystal clear that we're going to have to be fighting for a more humane, more inclusive, more equal and free democratic society for the rest of our lives. 
no matter what. But I'll tell you, this episode is being released the day before Election Day, Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. So there's something really good you can do. Go out and vote and get everyone you know to vote. You know, one of my best friends who I've known since first grade, he texted me the other day to say, hey, Kev, did you make sure your mom has a way to vote in her assisted living facility? And did you check with your nieces and nephews? Because some young folks don't think voting makes a difference. I'll tell you, I love that my friend did that. So stop and consider checking in with everyone you know like that and tell them to check in with everyone they know. I will tell you this, after living in this country for 52 years, I want to insist to younger folks out there that voting can make a huge, huge difference in your future, in the world you live in. Voting for Democrats is an incredibly important way to ensure your rights, your ability to make a good living, your being able to keep living in a stable, equitable, free society. It's huge. So vote and nudge everyone you know to vote also. So who knows? And maybe there will be some good news about how the midterms turned out by the time you're hearing this. But on the day I'm recording this, I know the news about how the midterms go could turn out to be devastating in ways we'll be affected by for many, many years. Because it's maintaining or losing our systems of democracy that's at stake. And I don't know how many more free and fair elections we'll be able to keep having if what's at issue keeps being keeping or not keeping democracy. In any case, that's one reason we are so dead set determined to remain a platform where people from marginalized groups can share about their real lives, like the three folks featured on this episode. And I say three folks because before Jonathan, we heard selections from that beautiful poem by Lee McCoby, a poem known as what it's like to be transgender. Hope Rush introduced us to the poem and to all the songs on today's episode, and Taj Easton added some sound design to the poem. And, of course, up top, we heard from the wonderful B. Van Slee. Now, David Crabb is the host of The Risk Show in Los Angeles, and he, too, was inspired to have a conversation with B about her story that we also put up on Patreon. And here's a little bit of what that sounds like. I think it's very important for the world to see, for people to eventually take it for granted that this is just another way of being. And just to see the world through our eyes in the same way they've seen the world through eyes of people who are other minority groups and marginalized people, where we've seen stories come over the years more and more from their point of view, and eventually some of the vitriol starts to ebb as people's emotional reaction that I think will start to calm down when it can be more taken for granted that this is just the world that we live in. And so representation for me is important in that regard. Like I want people to see that I'm a person who is just doing this thing and this is just who I am. 
So find those conversations and many dozens of hours of other bonus content, more stories, more conversations, even songs over at patreon.com slash risk by becoming a member there. You're helping us continue to put this important content out there for people to hear stories that open listeners hearts, stories that help people understand one another. And as always, if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. We'll be right back. We're back. Well, we couldn't resist. We, we had to put just one more song by a trans artist on the show. This is Sophie behind me now. And don't forget to look for us on our socials. We're at Risk Show, at all of them, or at our website, risk-show.com. My own socials are at the Kevin Allison. And with gift-giving season coming, don't forget the Risk book, at least three of the most classic risk stories that have been told by trans folks on the show are also in the risk book and you can ask for it wherever books are sold it's an editor's pick at amazon with 435 ratings almost 90 percent of them five stars folks today's the day vote 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 <laughs> Was that a teardrop in your eye? I never thought I'd see you cry. Just know whatever hurts, it's all mine. It's okay to cross okay to cry. I can see the truth through all the lies. Even after all this time, whatever it is, just know it's all right. It's okay. 